welcome to the High for This Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Taylor. In this episode, we're going to wrap up 2019, put a bow on it, review the end of the year, the concerts we saw, and then get down to the brass tacks, the best albums of 2019. I like to wait till the end of the year when other people's lists have come out to create my own list. I want to make sure that there's stuff that I didn't miss. I try to stay up to date with everything. I try to listen to the bands I've never heard of. I try to listen to songs from bands that sell out venues around New York that I've never heard of. Inevitably, the list will come out. I'll scan through them, and I think I have a pretty thorough understanding of what came out and what was good this year. Two months from now, somebody will turn me on to something that came out mid-year last year, and it'll be my favorite record of the year or something. That's what happened this year with the Caroline Rose record, which I really enjoyed. And luckily, we were able to see her once this summer. I listened to a lot of different records this year, some that were critically lauded, some that were universally praised, some that the crowd of music listeners in the world really thought were great, some I liked, some I didn't. I have my own eclectic taste. I think I have a pretty broad taste to where I like some pop things. I like some things that aren't that cool, but still have kind of an indie tint to them, I guess. I like a lot of sad music, like a lot of ethereal, emotional songwriting. I wouldn't say my perspective is unique, but I definitely have a style that I like, and I'm very confident in my top 10 list for me. And I think if you know me or you like the music I like, or we have similar tastes, I think you'll like all these records. Before we go through the best of the year list, I want to quickly wrap up the shows we saw towards the end of the year. It's been a couple of months since we did the podcast, which I apologize for. I promise to try to do them more often. On 9-20, I went and saw Black Pumas at Brooklyn Bowl with Chris Dreyer. Cool gig. Enjoyed it. They were a pretty buzzy band out of South by Southwest this year. I think they did like four or five showcases. Good performance. I think Brooklyn Bowl is about the right size for them right now. Brooklyn Bowl, you know, is about 600. And they're not a huge sounding group. They'll actually probably sound pretty good on festival stages, and I'm sure they'll be at various festivals this summer. But they were they were nice. Colors was a cool song to hear live. Didn't blow me away this show, but uh, I was glad to be there. Late night that same night was Garage Artois, which features, it's a trio featuring Stanton Moore from Galactic, Charlie Hunter, who is the virtuoso eight-string guitar player. If you've never heard him, he's pretty unreal. Instagram and actually see a bunch of clips of him playing that are just disgustingly good. I can't remember the third person in Garage Artois, sorry. But Stanton Moore is a legendary drummer from Galactic. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're out of New Orleans. But they're kind of a jammy, funky group. 
Stanton's just one of the sick drummers who kind of is a superhero in his role. A lot of times when they're playing and they get to like a really rowdy section, he'll stand up and start just bashing the drums. And he's a great player. Always love to see him. Charlie Hunter is so good. When he was warming up his amp, like just set, set his amp down, plugged in and started playing, everyone started losing their minds. And ironically, this wasn't actually a packed show. I think in the jam universe, they're obviously respected, these players, but they were doing two nights. They did this night and they did the night afterwards too. And I think it wasn't like a big destination crazy thing because a lot of these bands play multiple times a year at Brooklyn Bowl. So it wasn't like it was a unique experience, but I haven't seen them maybe ever this trio. I've seen Charlie Hunter. I've seen Charlie Hunter with Soul Live. I've seen Galactic a handful of times. But Charlie Hunter started playing, and even the techs on stage who were, like, you know, running wire had to stop and, like, lose their minds. Because he's not even doing anything crazy with effects or gear. I mean, he has beautiful gear. That's really what it is. And he's just so good. He starts just playing, like, arbitrary stuff, and it's just blowing people's minds. So that was a cool gig to see at Brooklyn Bowl. It was a two-for-one kind of night, because if you're already there for the Black Pumas, they don't make you leave and come back, so you can actually get in for two shows for the price of one, which is why I stayed. And then the next week, Ali and I went and saw Lizzo at Radio City Music Hall. This concert was just buck wild, rabid fan base, very empowering for the women in the audience. You know, people just love Lizzo and for good reason. It was a great performance. I actually would have loved to have seen her with a live band. It was the scenario that it's actually for most hip hop concerts where there's like a um, somebody on the turntables, whether, whether they were actually turntables or not, I don't, I don't know, but uh a woman was on the turntables and kind of she was also doing kind of a hype woman vibe. And then Lizzo had dancers. This would actually be a great thing to see at like Madison Square Garden, like full band, kind of like how Beyonce or Justin Timberlake would do. And I think, you know, she's heading there. She's kind of a rocket ship, sells out everything she every show she's done. And I think she already moved from bigger venues. You know, she's been playing. Like, I don't know where she played before Radio City, but. Within like a year of blowing up, she's already selling out multiple nights at Radio City. So then we had a little bit of a break. I had my infamous back injury in the Costco parking lot. I won't go into detail there, but it was not good. And I was on my back for a week. 
at the end of that week, though, I needed to rally and move my body and rejoin the world. And so I did. And I saw Bonnie Vare at Barclay Center. was a great show. I'm glad I went. I've seen Bonnie Vare maybe in every era. I was very conscious of the For Emma Forever Ago era as it was taking place. However, back then, uh, he played Bowery Ballroom, and that had to have sold out. I think the first time I saw Bonnie Vare was at Prospect Park in 2011, and luckily, our buddy Ralphie was running the lights, and so he got us into the VIP seats. Allie and I saw that, and I think my buddy Adam and his wife Lauren were there too. That was an unreal show, and it's only gotten better since. We saw him at Radio City, which I guess was part of the same tour, but on those Radio City shows, some of them were streamed live on YouTube YouTube when they were happening. Amazing shows. Then, 22 a million, I did not see him. He did... I think it was a matter of getting tickets. I didn't, I didn't have the energy to try to get the tickets. I'm pretty sure he played 11 shows in New York City. Six of them were at Pioneer Works down in Red Hook. Justin Vernon is an advisor. It's kind of like a indie hippie art space. A lot of people have weddings there. Um, we were there this summer for the People Festival. But he did that, and that was in 2016, and end of the year. And they also did like every other venue in New York. I think they played Capitol Theater, Music Hall, Williamsburg, Webster Hall, possibly Terminal 5. They set up everywhere. Kind of as a flex, I think. But also, Bon Iver was in this place where do they start playing basketball arenas or do they keep playing theaters and these 3,000-person venues? Because what they did previously, like, like I talked about in 2012, when I saw them at Radio City Music Hall, Radio City's cap is 6,000, and they did four nights. So that's 24,000 tickets sold. That is a show and a half at Madison Square Garden. So do you book Madison Square Garden? Do you do book Barclays? Is this the kind of band that can fill that sound? And probably yes. I mean, if Ed Sheeran can do it, pretty much anybody can, I guess. But... This was the first time they consciously said, all right, screw it, let's do arenas. And so I was interested to see how this show turned out. Really enjoyed the show. They played pretty much every song from I.I., which is the latest record 
and is on my best of the year list, which we'll hear about in a little bit. The band is very similar to the band he had in 2016 on the 22 A Million Tour with the addition of Jen Wasner from Y Oak, who is now also a multi-instrumentalist and is singing vocals, background vocals, which adds a nice texture. The first song, they open up with the album opener, which is I Mean, and it really adds a new element to it, like a freshness. And, you know, a lot of the Bonnie Vare vocals, they kind of alternate between being super high falsetto or being like this rugged um, kind of brute baritone or a voice that's been transformed by autotune or something. And when he needs to have harmony vocals, he either does that through this instrument he has called the Messina, where he can actually play like an omnichord. He can sing a note, or I guess like a vocoder. He can sing a note and then play the harmony on the keys. And it gives you this um, sort of the signature sound Justin Vernon has almost created with his work and the work he's done for Kanye is to where you have this like symphony of autotune. And so it's either that or you have men who are singing accompanying vocals super high. So to have a woman's voice actually was really nice and um, made a lot of sense and they work well together. So it was um, instantly kind of like this extra layer that we're not used to that was really appealing. So this show was great. They played the entire record, which was fine. I liked the record and the highlights of the record are highlights in their catalog. So like... Hey Ma is one of their best songs. And so seeing, hearing that's great. Naeem, which ended the set, I think is one of their more epic songs now. So it was cool. There are tunes I wish I would have heard, but that's fine. In the middle of the set, he did pull out... I wanted, I can't remember if it was acoustic or electric. I'll have to look at my um, Instagram story for it. Did Ari Stack's solo. And you just doesn't get any better than that. I remember him doing that at Prospect Park, and I pretty much lost my mind. And I lost my mind again at Barclays. So, amazing show. Really glad to see Bonnie Vare. I can't imagine not seeing them when they come into town. And he's on these cycles now where the records come out every every three or four years, so it's a special time when they do come. A couple days later, Explosions in the Sky are on kind of like a 20th anniversary tour. And they played Knockdown Center in Queens.
Knockdown Center is very close to the heart of the Bushwick that's been super gentrified over these past number of years. If you're at the Jefferson L stop, you basically walk up Troutman until you hit Masspath, and then you walk about 100 yards, and there is Knockdown Center. They don't do a ton of shows there, and I've talked about this in the past, is there's ordinances for them to get their liquor license. They had to agree to a bunch of different terms just for the community itself. However, being at the show, I really didn't see it as much of a nuisance. Everybody was kind of well-behaved. And it turns out they actually have parties there on the reg, I guess, on the weekends. These gay nightlife parties, which are apparently super crazy and sexual. And I can't imagine how like the, the concerts are any worse or better than that. Frank Ocean actually had his um, Prep Plus event at Knockdown Center. I guess that was a few weeks after the Explosion in the Sky show. Yeah, it's a crazy place. They don't have a ton of stuff there, but they do have an occasional big event. The sound there is fine. You kind of have to be... It's strange. It's big, so you can definitely see the band, but it's also kind of like this big... It's kind of like Pioneer Works, this big open space where it's a venue, but it's also like kind of a convention type place or a place to have an expo or a wedding or a art installation or something. So while I could hear, I could hear the whole show fine. It wasn't the hundred percent best sound experience. Cause if you were standing to the left, which we were at some point, there were certain dynamics that didn't make it in your direction. And what I found when I moved around the room, I could hear things a little more dynamically because with Explosion in the Sky, they're really doing like this symphonic type music, but they're doing it with electric guitars and heavily delayed and with the effects and stuff. And in some of the ones that have sort of a high melody, I needed to stand in a certain place to really get the full experience. So I was glad to go and check out Knockdown Center for the first time. And I was definitely glad to check out Explosion in the Sky on this tour because it's sort of like their victory lap. They don't tour full time. I think they all actually probably have jobs. You know, they're down in Austin. And I, they probably make a pretty penny from the amount they license their music because years and years later, you'll hear Your Hand is Mine on a commercial or on a trailer or on some TV something. And I, I hear it constantly. So there's some money in that. But it seems like they have their own lives, and then occasionally they decide to go and do tours. So, glad to see them. A few weeks after that, two nights back-to-back, saw Dead and Company at Madison Square Garden.
Allie and I have become huge Dead and Company fans. It's fun to go to the shows. It's fun to relearn all this Grateful Dead music. And actually, what I've told people is when I was in Tallahassee at Florida State, close to 20 years ago now, jam was completely oversaturated as a genre. We, were, we had jam bands coming in right and left. And this is when Chris and I were first starting to play. And we were kind of competing for space with every jam band on earth. And they were all playing the college circuit and they were all touring all the time. And I'm not talking about the big dogs. The big dogs have always been around, like the fish, the widespread panic and all that. But what comes with that is that widespread panic comes and plays Tallahassee or something. And then every venue in town will have a widespread post show because there are these bands of these kids who are, you know, 21 to 25 or something who have the stamina to tour all year. You know, it's really in your 20s that you're willing to go do that. That's kind of what we did for a number of years. But you're willing to go and just drive from town to town, make a couple hundred bucks, you know, party, and then move on. So it's like I had some affinity for some jam groups, but I was just so tired of it and, like, so fatigued from the concept. And I kind of kept it to, to fish and that was about it for jam bands that I was like willing to go see every once in a while. However, I'm a huge John Mayer fan, as we all know. And so I was happy to go see dead and company on the first night. I sat behind the stage and they didn't sell the first two or three rows. So there, there was tons of space. There's tons of people that, that kind of made their way down to those rows. I think my seat was in like the fourth or fifth row, but for a while I was standing in the third row. I had the entire row to myself. And standing behind the stage in Madison Square Garden is actually a great vantage point. I highly suggest it if you're buying tickets last minute and those are available. There was a screen, a video screen, so you can see what the rest of the audience sees um, behind the stage. You're really right there um, on stage with them, so that was like really cool. I could also see the backstage activity. So like when Bob Weir's daughter, Monet Weir, was having her friends go from side to side in their Halloween costumes and stuff, they were like really close to me. Bill Walton's back there. You can kind of see all like the VIP activity. It's pretty cool. Went the next night with more people and we were up, we were behind the stage again, but we were up in this 300 section. It wasn't the sky bridge, but it was on the same sort of latitude longitude as a sky bridge. It was also fine. Um, it was much harder to get tickets the second night. Maybe because people had Halloween plans the night before and it was slightly less crazy. But second night was also great. They brought up Maggie Rogers, who sang on Friend of the Devil. And then in the encore, she sang on The Wait, the song made famous by the band in The Last Waltz. The first night, they actually opened with Ripple. And Robert Hunter had just died. Robert Hunter is the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. He was a collaborator with Jerry Garcia on most of their songs to where he wrote the lyrics, sort of like the Elton John, Bernie Toppin thing. Actually, even Trey Anastasio and Tom Marshall and Fish, that kind of setup. So when the show started, on the screens, they had a picture of Robert Hunter. And Bob Weir came out. And Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzman were on the drums. It was just the three of them. They started playing Ripple. 
And then halfway through, the rest of the band came out. But they were just projecting this picture of Bob Hunter and then eventually a picture of um, Bob Hunter and Jerry. And it was actually pretty touching. So it's pretty cool. We tried going to Playing in the Sand, which is the Mexico retreat where Dead and Company does three nights, which is happening this week. But we were waitlisted. It was kind of impossible to get in. We waited too long. So have to wait for next year on that. So then the very next night, I was busy this week, I guess. I guess this was, this was a Saturday night. Uh, I saw Railroad Earth. Andrew Altman of Whiskey Richard and Nectar fame back in Tallahassee. They played Bowery Ballroom. Drew was gracious enough to give me a VIP pass for this. So I was able to go backstage at Bowery Ballroom for the first time, which I enjoyed. It was fun. Bowery Ballroom is a sort of a legendary New York City venue for the past 20 years. And I've definitely seen a ton of shows there. Some of my favorite shows I've ever seen have been there. So that was special for me. It was cool seeing them play. They packed the place for a couple nights. That was a lot of fun. And then two weeks later, or I guess three weeks later almost, FKA Twigs at King's Theater in Brooklyn. sort of a last minute idea to go see this it was really good i was a little what do i say dismayed not dismayed i wish the vocals were a bigger portion of it twigs is a dancer 
a lot of the show is very visual and she has an amazing stage production with amazing dancers and stuff because the music has these rich electronic elements and there's a lot of on the records there's a lot of vocal parts that are synthetic live they're also synthetic it's not like you're seeing like these great vocal performances she's just doing what she has to do to get through and um there were times where it would get softer like for cellophane at the end she it did get a little more vocal centric but for the first half of the show I think only like 40, 40 or 50% of the vocals were even live. It was hard to tell what was live and what wasn't. So that for me made it a little challenging. But overall, I really enjoyed it. And it was definitely worth seeing. And if she comes through your town, definitely check it out. I don't know what I was expecting, but I, I enjoyed it. And then in December, the whole study came through to do Massive Nights 4 at Brooklyn Bowl. They've been doing this thing, this residency at Brooklyn Bowl, obviously for the fourth year now, where they play four nights. They have the whole band come out. Craig Finn's been doing a ton of solo shows and solo work. And so we actually don't see many whole Steady shows. They had a new record this year, Thrashing Through the Passion, which I actually didn't make it through that much. I saw a lot of the tunes live and they were fine, but it wasn't mind-blowing for me. Seeing them live is, and I'm so grateful I was able to watch them. It's been a while since I've seen them. I think it was two years ago I saw them last. They're the kind of band that I used to see every four or five months. They were in New York constantly. Like That's one of the things, as this decade comes to a close, I have a lot of nostalgia from maybe 10 years ago, the kind of bands we used to be able to see in New York because they were indigenous and, you know, for a million reasons, a lot of those bands have moved to L.A., a lot of it's gentrification, the cost of living in Brooklyn. A lot of it is that they're older now. A lot of these bands, the guys are in their 40s. There's not a lot of money in music, if you haven't heard. So I'm grateful when I get to see these people that I really enjoy. And Hold Steady, one of my favorite New York City bands of all time, and I'll definitely see them next year at Massive Nights 5, as many times as I can. So obsessed with writing the next best American record That we gave all we had to the time we got to bed Cause we knew we could We were so obsessed with writing the next best American record Cause we were just that good it was just that good Whatever's on tonight I just wanna party with you To bang us all 
for our best albums of 2019. If you follow me on social media platforms, you may have already seen this, but we'll go through them, review the year, the albums that really stuck with me, and made it to my best albums 2019 list at the very end. So first, Lana Del Rey, Norman fucking Rockwell. This album is quite good. I think it's their best album since Ultraviolence, another record that was quite good. This album's notable. She worked with Jack Antonoff on it. Jack Antonoff is pretty much the it producer in the pop music world right now. I thought this album is very cinematic. I really enjoyed her vocal performances. I think her whole essence, maybe you call it a persona, maybe you call it an act, it can come off as a little fake. However, regardless of what that is, I think the music on this record is so good it almost doesn't matter. I haven't had a chance to see her live yet, which might change my opinion. I'm not totally sure. She played at Jones Beach. I think it was in September. I didn't have a chance to go. Would have loved to. What dismayed me a little bit from her set list that I saw online was that she was not playing what I consider to be the bangers from this album. And granted, they're low-key bangers because they are gentle, softer tunes. But two of my favorites are The Next Best American Record and The Greatest, which are back-to-back on the record on side two, you might say. She's not playing those live. Something tells me it's very hard to recreate the vibe of how she sings on record live. Because I think what happens is a lot of the vocals are, you know, doubled and tripled and there's reverb and it's a much different experience in the studio, obviously, than it is in performance. I watched her on a BBC One performance, the thing where they cover tunes by other people. And she did the Sublime cover that's on the record on there. And it was fine, but there was a bunch of vocals piped in. And it made me think that when she performs, she's not standing in the center of the stage belting out these tunes. So I'll reserve judgment until I actually see it live. But I really love the writing on this record. I love the arrangements. I love how sparse they are at times. That sometimes it's just one acoustic guitar or piano and her voice And I think her voice sounds amazing on this record. So there wasn't anything I would put above this. It's a very, very solid record. It's pretty long. It's about 14 songs. And you may get fatigued if you do it all in one listen. But every time I've put it on, I've waited to have a moment to where I want to skip to the next track. And I never do because I think it's actually so quality. So that's my number one for the year. Lana Del Rey's Norman fucking Rockwell.
Next up, at the number two slot, you might say, is James Blake, Assume Form. This album showed up on almost nobody's list of anything, which was kind of shocking to me, but that's okay. James Blake is super popular and collaborates with a lot of people, especially a lot of um, hip-hop artists. He collaborated with Travis Scott on his latest, and Travis Scott appears on this record. But it doesn't matter. I think James Blake really made a great record here. It's stuck in my head for weeks at a time. Early in the year when it was cold out, for about a month, this is the only thing I listened to. And we were in Puerto Rico for a week, and it was in my head the entire time. Like one day we came home, and I had to put it on my computer speakers just to hear it because it was like the only thing that I could... I had going through my head. It was crazy. So this was definitely an important record for me, and it's my list. This is how it's going to roll. Assume Form, the first track, I think, is really, really good. Can't Believe It The Way We Flow, I think, is also very cinematic and gorgeous. He collaborates with Travis Scott on Mile High, which is kind of like this unique vibe they get together, which, um, I don't know, I just found it very interesting. And he also collaborates with international superstar Rothalia on Barefoot in the Park. She is a megastar on the other side of the world. She is a Spaniard, so that's my number two pick. Number three also got no love from the universe, but I think it's one of those things where the national are maybe viewed as old fogies or a legacy artist at this point to some people, especially to the kids maybe, but I Am Easy to Find was one of my favorite records all year. I saw them two nights in a row at Prospect Park, and I love some of the teams on this record. Where Is Her Head? I actually think deserves Grammys for how it was recorded. I actually love it as a composition. I Am Easy to Find is the kind of sorrowful, slow, emotional gut punch I've come to love from The National. This record's interesting because they collaborated with Mike Mills on a short film that he was making, and the film inspired the music, the music inspired the film, and there's a lot of female vocalists on this record, including Gillian Dorsey, 
who sings lead, I think, on six of the tracks. And there's this back and forth with Berninger's voice and whoever happens to be singing the female vocal at the time on these tracks. I think it adds a new dimension to the band. They've always been a very composed group. You know, if you watch their live performances, the you know, there's guitars, there's piano happening, there's like trombone and trumpet at various times, like very subtle. And there's also a lot of their songs, there'll be like five different background vocal parts happening at the same time. It's always like very subtle composed things. So what was interesting about seeing this live, they're performing with an extra drummer. They had James McAllister collaborating with them. They had a string section on stage. And then they had the um, Brooklyn Youth Chorus for the tunes that they sing on the record, which is an all-female, I assume, like teenager group of um, high school students. And they had two female vocalists performing with them, Mina Tyndall and Kate Stables. And it really made it, to me, like almost like a classical chamber music um, type performance. Really interesting. It was really beautiful to see it at Prospect Park. Also, uh, Light Years, I think, is just one of my favorite tunes of all time now. I listened to that so many times recently, and I taught myself how to play on guitar so I could just play the riff over and over again. So I love the National I Am Easy to Find. It did not make hardly anybody's top anything list, but it's really important to me. next album on the list is Sharon Van Etten, Remind Me Tomorrow. This album is what I'll call Sharon's Leaving New York album. And the song and video for Seventeen really drive that home. Sharon has been an amazing artist to see live. I think her songwriting and her voice and her delivery is just so good and so transfixing when you see it in concert. This, I think, is her best record, maybe since Tramp. Tramp's an album she made in 2012. And it's wild how in just eight years, you know, 2012, she was making the album in Aaron Desner's garage. He was producing it out there in Ditmas Park. And she was kind of couch surfing and living out of her car. And now she's leaving and doing what most people do who lived in Brooklyn, is moving to Los Angeles, uh, is now a mother and she is involved with the drummer in her band. I'm not sure if they're married or not, but they're moving together as a family. Really the end of an era. It's weird to come to the end of this decade, and there's so many artists that, I don't know that we took for granted, but just assumed would kind of always be around and always be part of like the New York City music scene. And a lot of people have decamped for L.A., and it's really 
it's a striking sign of just how much gentrification can mess up even like the best places. Cause it's not as if Brooklyn, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it has wildly transformed in some ways. It definitely has in the cost of living and how much it costs to rent an apartment. And definitely Williamsburg is nothing like it used to be. It's no longer in any way, shape or form an artist's enclave, but it really sucks that like the people who made Brooklyn so cool in the first place have mostly been kicked out, priced out, or just there's no reason to live there if it's if it's going to be you know Martha's Vineyard with a bunch of name brand retail. I don't know. It just kind of sucks. This record has a bunch of great tracks, but I think the back to back to back of Comeback Kid, Jupiter Four, and Seventeen are quite good. What's interesting is when I was listening to the albums that I wanted to put on this list, I also started making a Spotify playlist. And when I started listening to her record again, I'm like, dude, this has this is actually way better than I remembered. And there were so many solid tracks. I actually moved it up way higher in the list than I originally had it. So I love this record. Remind Me Tomorrow by Sharon Van Etten. I waited outside I took it remote I wanted a bed Tell the story or it goes Tell the story or it goes Full time You talk your money up while it's living in a coal mine Two time to call your mind Hey, my, hey, my Two votes, you know, you mop it up Well, you wanted it to hold it You're back and forth with that The next album on the list is I, I by Bonnie Vare, which we talked about some in the last segment since... We saw them in concert fairly recently. The New York Times actually has a great episode of Diary of a Song. You can catch it on the website or on YouTube about the album's opener, I, Me. And it's really eye-opening to see how collaborative the process was for this record. And the people Justin Vernon pulled together to work on it. And really how this song came together is kind of wild. It happened in different studios all over the world with different people kind of like putting in their input so definitely check that out if you can like i said hey ma i think is now instantly one of their best tracks naeem was another favorite of mine but this record's really cool i think it like it flows well and it's easy to just burn through in one listen it goes by pretty quick Something more to you. If my stars burn out of light, if my diamond loses shine, your gold love gets me through, gets me through, 
Next record on my list is Marin Morris, Girl. This record is not on a lot of people's top whatever of the year. I think it's another one that just I am fond of, maybe because I saw her live. And I see so much stuff live. It's rare that I'm blown away by the performer or I actually really feel this great charisma from them. But Marin Morris' show it was the first time in a while I've seen somebody with like such electricity in the show and the crowd. And I thought she was just a great performer. It was really nailing um, all these tunes and it's not easy to do. I think we take for granted the stuff that comes out of Nashville. Yeah. A lot of it can be very cookie cutter, but it takes a great performer to really pull this stuff off. And I think like she really has, carved out her own style and her own place in the the Nashville ecosystem. And especially in an ecosystem that's so dearth of women, women performers and really celebrating women performers. I think like she's doing an amazing job of kind of owning that space along with people like Casey Musgraves. So really into this record, you know, it got reviewed mixed, but I think like she's a star and I think kind of whatever she's performing, I think will be good. She also had quite a year with the high women. I didn't check out their record that much cause I wasn't too thrilled with what I heard for snippets, but I think what they're doing is cool as well. And if you get a chance to see her, definitely check it out. She transitioned from playing, you know, I saw her at Brooklyn steel and the next night she played Terminal 5. And then later in the year she came back and sold out Radio City. So she's definitely on the rise. And she's somebody I could see within a year maybe doing a Madison Square Garden or something. So Mary Morris, girl, good record. Next record on the list, Four of Arrows by Great Grandpa. And I'll admit, I found this while I was going through Stereo Gums Top 50 because I hate the thing where I put my list out. Two weeks later, I find a great record and then I wish I would have added it. So I found Great Grandpa, this band, has an album called Four of Arrows. They're not hugely popular. I mean, they have a tiny desk from a couple years ago. You know, they have a band camp. They don't have a crazy number of listeners on Spotify or anything, but I think the reason they're getting some buzz now is just how good this record is, and I was blown away by it. Being from Seattle, they definitely, I could see the lineage of Death Cab for Cutie to their sound, and the vocalist is female, and so there were a couple times, just based on how like rocking some of it was, it gave me a little bit of a Cranberries vibe. It was this acoustic track, called Split Up the Kids that really knocked me on my butt 
and made me want to go back and listen to this album kind of over and over again. So definitely check out Great Grandpa Four of Arrows, one of my top albums of the year. Looking out on the river Next record on the list is Better Oblivion Community Center. This, of course, is the super group, super duo of Phoebe Bridgers and Connor Oberst. Phoebe Bridgers is just a lightning bolt, is on fire the past couple years, and I really feel like all of her output has been super high quality. When they announced this record, it just kind of dropped one night, and they announced a tour, they instantly had to, like add more shows, move the venues to like bigger venues. Cause they were like, they booked it to like the Bowery ballroom and they ended up having to do it at Bowery music hall in Williamsburg and added a Brooklyn steel show. Brooklyn steel is like six times the size of Bowery. So it was really cool seeing them in concert. You know, this album I think has good tunes and I love hearing them sing together, but they're such prodigies that it's almost like whatever they're doing is, it's going to end up being really good. It was cool live because they also traded vocals on each other's songs. So like Phoebe sang Train Underwater and then Connor sang like a metal version of um, Funeral. And then they did the replacements, Can't Hardly Wait. It was a really, really cool concert to be at. And luckily I was smashed right up against the front row and Music Hall in Williamsburg for this. Two songs I liked pretty well on this are um, I Didn't Know What I Was In For and My City. If you're just going to check out a track or two, but cool record, two of my favorite artists, and was glad they did this. Got your head in the sand, got your soul on the stand, see you so educated with your elaborate plans. You don't care to correct it, keep yourself unaffected, who you're really protecting. And if is Don't Feed the Pop Monster by Broods. Broods I have spoken about in the past many times. They're a brother-sister duo from New Zealand. They were produced by Joel Little, although not that much on this record. Broods have become 
more pop in recent years, but they've never really broken through to really being a crazily famous artist or anything. But they've been making some awesome records. And they played one of the best shows I saw this year, which was at Irving Plaza in April. They made a video for their song Peach, and Peach was definitely one of the highlights of the album and the show. But what was interesting is that so many deep cuts on the album just sounded so badass live. And I think George is a great front woman. Even some of the weaker album cuts actually turned into some of the best live cuts. So I was so happy to be at that show. And every time I've seen them, it's like they've gone up 10 levels since the last time. So always very happy to check them out. Finally on my list is Big Thief, who I really included because I feel like they've had the kind of year that deserves laudatory praise. But they released two records. One is called UFOF, and that's remarkable because usually once a week I go to Williamsburg and I go to Rough, Rough Trade to see what vinyl is trending, like what they're pushing, what they're trying to sell, and also like what's selling. And UFOF is the first time I've ever seen vinyl being sold out two hands is the more recent record and actually has one of the more accessible tunes on it which is not they made the circuit playing like the late late night shows and cbs sunday morning and all that performing not and you can find some great clips of that online ufof though as a as a body of work i think is really good there aren't really standout tracks per se but the overall vibe of the record is just a band really gelling and really experienced playing with each other. And I think they produced some really beautiful music on that record. So that's my top 10 for the year. I'm just going to kind of leave it at that. I also have a Spotify playlist. Maybe I'll send it out in a newsletter. Or you can definitely find it under my name on Spotify, Scott Taylor. But... Pretty good year for music. I think better than 2018, maybe. Some good records. Some good solid records overall. Definitely saw some great live performances, and I'm really excited to see what 2020 has in store for us. The next episode I do will actually, unless I have a bunch of new things to talk about, which I don't because it's early in the year, I may do like a retrospective on maybe the past 10 years and bring up some records that I loved 
from this past era and see what still holds up. Talk soon.